Hello and welcome to the latest in the Balderton podcast series. I'm Ben Goldsmith and today I'm with Maya Ketsman, who by day leads a team of designers at St Mary's uh, Hospital, which is quite an impressive thing to do. And over the last uh, few months, Maya's been working with us here at Balderton to help uh, do a bit of research and a bit of thinking into the world of healthcare and health tech. So Maya, please, if you take take a minute or so, give a short introduction to yourself and how, how you got into what you do today. Thank you very much for having me. My pleasure. So yes, I am a designer, like you said. Um, my background is in engineering. That was my undergraduate degree. And then I did my postgraduate degree at the Royal College of Art in industrial design. So the, uh, the engineering degree, you know, you learn things like how things work, materials and, you know, the physics and maths behind mechanics. And then at the Royal College of Art, I learned more about the human-centered side of things. So understanding end-user needs, ergonomics, and all that kind of thing. So the sort of human interface of uh, products and how all that works. So mixing that human element with the design skills exactly. that you already had in the bag. So what made you want to apply those skills specifically to, to healthcare? So I've always been interested in healthcare. I nearly studied medicine, uh, but I didn't go that route. So I, uh, as part of my degree show at the Royal College of Art, I designed a medical device and that basically kind of set me off in a career working in healthcare. Um, it's a very rewarding area, I suppose, where you can have a real positive impact um, and you could even save lives ultimately. So it's a rewarding space to work in and it's also a space where uh, there are a lot of problems to solve. You say it's very rewarding and of course, you know, one can only imagine the amount of uh, genuine life-threatening or life-affecting problems that there are to solve in, in healthcare. Um, what's the route by which you have to travel to get uh, a product innovation in healthcare to market? Because I can imagine it has to be quite a lot more stringent, it has to be quite a lot more uh, carefully thought through and regulated than you know a product in any other any other industry. Do you have any examples when uh, a yep. product that you've designed has, has gone yeah. to market? Yeah, you're right. It's, it's a lot more heavily regulated than other industries for good reasons. Um, so I can give you an example of uh, surgical instruments I worked in uh, as part of as part of Johnson Johnson. So these are, <clears throat> I worked on orthopedic uh, instruments that surgeons use during knee replacement surgeries. I was quite lucky to be involved in a team that was looking at these instruments from scratch. So not just doing sort of incremental improvements on existing instruments, but actually completely rethinking the design of them. So the... And this product was basically a, a toolkit of sorts that helps surgeons perform complex knee surgery. Exactly, yes. Um, and it was turning um, the instruments into what are now sort of single use uh, and also non-single use but made out of plastic and uh, you could do a lot more using sort of manufacturing techniques uh, of injection molding than you can do with using sort of metal parts. So the, the redesign of the whole instrument kit took um, a few years, two, three, four years to do sort of the initial testing on artificial bones and then on cadavers and then to sort of uh, design them uh, to be 
uh, usable on humans, on, on actual patients, so putting in into clinical trials. So the whole process took quite a few years, so seven, eight years to actually seven get them. Seven or eight them. years? Yeah, oh, to actually nice. get them. That's actually not, not bad considering that we're talking about highly invasive, you know, I guess that's the big difference because I hear seven or eight years for product innovation and think, wow, that is that's quite a long time. But you say there's several processes you need to go yeah. through. First, you work with artificial limbs and bones, etc. Then on cadavers, like dead folk, yeah. and onto actual real human people. Yes, you know, to someone outside the healthcare industry, I can't imagine the, how those steps work or how long it is in between those steps and what hurdles you need to jump over. What what are those steps? Is it is it difficult? Who, who is the body that decides whether you can take those steps? Yeah, so uh, to give you an example for Johnson Johnson, first of all, we had buy-in from the top. So management at Johnson Johnson decided that their instrument kit needs a big redesign. I was working with bioengineers and another designer to <clears throat> look assess first of all the sort of current instruments, what the problems are with them. And we took different approaches on how to do that. One is to actually talk to surgeons and nurses that you that interact with these instruments and um, to sort of ask them what the issues are with them. But uh, often you might not get the um, the real sort of insights from just talking to people. So you get the real insights more from just observing how how they interact with the instruments. So watching them in surgery and then videoing them and watching the, the videos afterwards again. And then you can pick up on things that, you know, surgeons do with the instruments to sort of compensate for the for their for their uh, imperfect almost. exactly yeah. imperfect design. So talking testimony from the surgeons and medical staff sometimes isn't enough in itself you need to bring your design or engineering eye yeah into that situation exactly. to potentially see where the shortcomings are exactly and that's, that's one of the sort of uh, key things that designers are trained to do it's to sort of really uncover uh, these uh, sort of true kind of problems uh, often somebody will come uh, to us at the, in the hospital and say um, I've got this problem in on my ward or I have this solution and very often the problem that they've highlighted it is not the the true sort of problem that should uh, necessarily be uh, looked at. So back to the surgical instruments. So once you sort of understand what the problems are and then what these instruments are meant to be uh, doing. So once you have your sort of constraints, then you can start to think about possible solutions. So you start you know, sketching out solutions, making 2D prototypes, in going into 3D, and then using these um, to uh, test on, first of all, artificial bones, and then moving on to sort of cadaver testing in the lab with surgeons, and then ultimately into sort of clinical trials, testing them on real people. And, you know, you've listed through those three steps quite quickly, but how long does that procedure take? Because, you know, I would imagine there's no such thing as minimum vinyl product testing in healthcare. They need to be pretty good. Yes, well, um, they don't need to be perfect. So uh, actually one of the things, that the sort of main differences, so I've, I've got an engineering and design background. I would say one of the big differences between engineers and designers is that Designers tend to be more comfortable uh, testing rough prototypes. Um, Than engineers? So, uh, I would say so, yeah. Mm. So, you know, we would we will just 
very quickly move into cutting out cardboard and uh, testing little mechanisms uh, on actual sort of end users and uh, <clears throat> get feedback fairly rapidly. So it goes well with this kind of lean startup methodology where we sort of iterate quickly um, and, you know, when you're not afraid to have an imperfect uh, concept uh, to show to somebody and get feedback on it. Um, so at the feedback stage, you can almost use that MVP, Lean Startup methodology, but I suppose when it comes to product development and you're actually yeah. designing the finished bit of kit, that's where it becomes a more time-consuming yeah. uh, and and delicately handled yeah, absolutely. process. This is where, yeah, exactly. This is where you can't afford a rough prototype. When you, you know, it's I'm glad that you, I'm, I'm saying that, you know, I'm fine with that. <laughs> exactly, into clinical trials. So, you know, when you get to the clinical trial stage, the instruments are, have been tested uh, properly uh, on cadavers. They are, you know, manufactured to the highest possible spec using, you know, biocompatible materials and all of that kind of stuff. So, where does the funding come for from that part? Because I suppose building mm-hmm. certain products, whether they're surgical or other kind of uh, hardware innovations within healthcare, uh, they're not going to be cheap to make. Is something that occurs no. in my mind, especially at prototyping phase. Yeah. Uh, is the funding for them different to, you know, if I think about a, another kind of hardware innovation in technology, maybe it's angel funding or uh, maybe a round funding that that company needs to get their hardware on the production line. Is it a different process when it comes to health tech? Um, it's not necessarily a different process, but I think the in terms of product development, but in terms of raising money, it, it might be, it might be more difficult. In the case of the surgical instruments, we had Johnson Johnson funding. That was an internal uh, product. But if I were an external innovator, inventor working in a garage, uh, there might be challenges. Uh, if you didn't raise. have that buy-in from the top, you'd need exactly. to. Would yeah. you need to maybe align yourself with someone in industry or a, a body in industry? Yeah. To- so either you would. Uh, approach uh, medical device co- depending on what you have medical device company and you might have maybe protected your idea um, and uh, you might license it or sell it into them um, or you might uh, approach um, investors yourself so I did this with my uh, smear test device which I designed at the RCA it's a device to allow women to take a smear test by themselves so I actually raised money to uh, develop it further, to um, do a proof of principle trial. And uh, this was, you know, a considerable amount of money that I had to raise. And I had to, you know, get an investor who kind of trusted that eventually in a few years' time this would uh, lead to a successful product. And I suppose that uh, investor, from your own personal experience, that investor needs to be quite an expert in in the field, is that is that correct? Because I suppose um, even a very wise, knowledgeable, generalist tech VC wouldn't really know the ins and outs of the healthcare profession in as quite as much detail as you'd require to have the foresight to say, you know what, that innovation is going to be yeah. changing surgical procedure, or whatever it is, in in in, in yeah. two three years time. Uh, 
they don't necessarily need to be experts, but uh, they might be interested in the problem that the inventor is solving. It might resonate with them. And like all VCs have a network of experts that they uh, sort of tap into to sort of do, do due diligence on, on stuff that's coming in that interests them. So that's what my investor did, uh, sort of did his own due diligence and asked uh, asked people and experts in the field and made that uh, decision that way to to invest. So you've done the procedure from both sides of the fence to almost you've been the kind of inventor, entrepreneurial designer taking an idea uh, via uh, an old-fashioned investment route through the procedure and you've been uh, in the Johnson & Johnson camp with a buying from the top. In both of those procedures, when you're pushing a healthcare innovation through those movements, are there parts of that procedure that are potentially in need of a bit of innovation themselves? Uh, I can understand that I suppose every bit of healthcare needs to be quite well regulated, but is there any that seem a bit too, a bit superfluous, a bit too long? Yes. So as an inventor working outside of any, uh, outside of the healthcare system or outside of any big corporation, it's actually very difficult to get inside into the healthcare system. So in order to do the proof of principle tri trial on the smear test kit, I designed, it was quite a procedure um, and it took uh, several months to get to the right person who then, to the right clinician who then engaged in the, in the project and was interested to carry out a trial in his clinic. And then there's the whole kind of um, regulatory side of things where you need to get ethics approval to do a test. Um, that sounds quite important. It's very important, but it does take months and it does uh, take, it's a lot of paperwork. So there's maybe streamlining bureaucracy issues yeah. that could be looked at and solved relatively easily. Yeah, I would say so. So in the hospital at Helix, uh, right now it's a Mary's Hospital, we are doing a proof of principle trial for a very simple uh, device to allow kids to manage their asthma easier. Uh, and it's, it's, it's basically an app with a little with a whistle that works with the app and it, it's with a very, whistle so the kids blow through a whistle yeah they blow through a whistle the whistle right. changes pitch depending on airflow through it and then the microphone uh, picks up the, the pitch and changes it into a peak, lung peak flow reading and it's a very very simple device and yet we have to go through the whole um, ethics uh, you know documentation and uh, wait for a few months for the ethics committee to get together and make a decision on whether we should be allowed to do this. With all that in mind, you know, you've been on both sides of the fence. If you're now talking to a young designer, a young kind of inventor, uh, and they have a, what they think is a great idea for a product innovation within the healthcare industry, what is a one piece of advice you give them? If you had to pick one, that you would give, that you would give you, that you would give Maya, <laughs> where when you first had the idea for the the smear test innovation without the buying from the top, yeah. what would you say? I don't think there's one thing. Maybe the That's one cheating. thing, <laughs> maybe the one thing is find a person who really does, who really, really understands the healthcare system and how it works. Um, but the the few things that I think it's is very important to keep in mind is. Um, are you solving a real problem? Um, who is going to 
buy this uh, solutions? What are the ways into the healthcare system? Because I think um, ideas are plenty, but the actual implementation of those ideas, that's the hard bit. That's the 90% of the, you know, work. Uh, and sometimes it's it's not as fun as they're coming up with the idea. So um, in healthcare, it's really important to think about the who's going to pay for this because we have a national healthcare system here and the the consumer is not doesn't pay for the service so it's a very different sort of ecosystem if you like uh, to operate in than if you're designing an app that's consumer focused so you mentioned the things to keep in mind you know for a young entrepreneur innovating in 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 healthcare are keep the realities of this situation in check. So who's going to buy it? Who's going to sell it eventually? Uh, and to keep your eyes on the problem that you're solving. You also mentioned that in the UK, the, the NHS um, is rather unique, you know, instead of a, almost a, a, a free market when it comes to healthcare that you have in the US and other parts of the world. There's one predominant system that is the buyer of healthcare technology. Is that a good thing or is that a, a bad thing potentially for innovators? And you know, I guess in my head, potentially an oversimplistic view, but the NHS is one big company. If you're selling yeah. to them, have you cracked it or is it not that or is it not that simple? Yes. So although we do have uh, you know a national health system here in the U- UK and you would assume it's a well it is a monopoly buyer, but it's not it isn't a case of um, you come up with a great idea, you've got evidence to say that it's it's good and the NHS buys it and therefore you have instantly, you know, a market of 70 million people. No, the NHS is quite fragmented. So um, it's got um, o- over 200 CCGs and each one is responsible for how they spend their money. So if you have an idea and you want to, the NHS as a whole to adopt it, you have to sell it into all of these CCGs. Seriously, so even though it's one big company, you would go through you would 300 have to, yeah. sort of regionally specified yeah. lumps of NHS yeah. to sell the same innovation in. Yeah, and um, yeah. So also, if you if you have a solution that you have implemented in one NHS trust, um, and that procedure might have taken you months, if not years then to sell into the next NHS trust, although it might be easier because you've, uh, you know, learned... Done it once already. Done it once already. It's, it's another kind of sell you need to do. Because so, that seems a bit of a, an elongated procedure. Is there any good is, is there any good to come out of that compartmentalised approach or is it just a pain? To be honest, it's a bit of a pain. Um, pain, yeah. So... Um, I'm sure there are good reasons why. why yeah, not to go go hard on the NHS. It is a fantastic institution. Absolutely. I think we can all agree. But it seems a bit of a, a procedural streamlining wouldn't go amiss. Wouldn't go amiss for the NHS. If there's one, you know, to finish one bit of advice that you could give uh, the government or those that create the legislation when it comes to uh, health tech and uh, the legislation pertaining to innovation in healthcare, what what would that be? So we haven't talked about sort of digital uh, solutions, but I would say that's one of the sort of most exciting things that's happening in healthcare. The fact, you know, now that we can, um, I've seen a lot of sort of digital therapeutic 
uh, so therapeutic solutions out there. So, for example, Sleepio is an example that we often give here in the UK because it's a UK company uh, and it's cognitive behavioral therapy online to help you um, sleep better if you're suffering from insomnia. Um, and, you know, it's a, we're going to see more and more of these types of solutions out there that have proper clinical evidence behind them uh, to say that, you know, they're effective at solving sleep problems. So this is a very sort of exciting time and, uh, you know, wouldn't it be great if we could prescribe a digital solution in, uh, in place of a drug or in place of therapy, going to an actual therapist. So there aren't any sort of mechanisms in place to reimburse, you know, the, the, the NHS doesn't reimburse these um, digital solutions. And I think it needs to catch up uh, with that. So if there's one piece of, you know, advice I would give is for the NHS to seriously start thinking about um, um, digital solutions. Yeah, so this is putting some kind of system in place to maybe have an approved uh, list of apps or app-driven yeah. services that doctors would be able to prescribe, for want of a better word, to yeah, uh, patients that could, could benefit from them. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing a lot of um, healthcare apps and sort of Apple Store and Google Play Store, over 100,000, and yet none of them have proper sort of, you know, stamps of approval. So it's very difficult for an end user to decide which ones are actually any good. In fact, we know for a fact that a lot of them are actually really, really bad. So, um, Wow, and I suppose should... it's very easy for someone to develop a bad health yeah, exactly. There are <laughs> there are no barriers to entry. So, um, yeah, I definitely for a healthcare app, I would say absolutely there needs to be some kind of uh, mechanism in place to sort of filter out the bad ones. So, if there was a if there was a, almost a list of uh, approved apps that the NHS or another regulatory body had put their stamp on and said, yes, this is safe and healthy and good for you to to download and use, I think I would you know I would trust that. That is a pretty a pretty decent idea. Thanks for thank you for joining us, Maya. Thank you. Excellent.